Today's reading is from Malachi chapter 3 through chapter 4. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares a son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good afternoon. My name is Marco, and I serve as the preaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It's a joy to be with you this afternoon. In the event that you just walked in and you caught Eric on the tail end, we're going to find ourselves in Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, and we're working all the way through chapter 4, closing off with verse 6. And so while you open and load your Bibles, let me just give you a quick little update. Today we're going to be ending our series in Malachi. We will have been here for the for at least seven weeks. And so I just want to tell you where we're headed in the next coming weeks so that you are prepped. As we close Malachi, next week we enter into the season that is Advent, where we focus on a specific time in the life of Jesus, and that is in his arrival, in his birth, in his coming. And so uh, there's some pretty cool things happening with Advent. For the, for the coming weeks, you're going to see a couple of young men who are gifted in preaching, uh, who have been in something we call the preaching lab. And the preaching lab is something that we do once a month, and we've been doing it for about the last year and a half. And so these gentlemen are going to be coming up and preaching through the season of Advent. I'm really excited about this. You've met some of them before. You've heard some of them before. Uh, but I'm really excited about this because this is one of the front row seat things that I get to experience, where we get to develop preachers, and then you get to see the fruit of their development. Uh, and so really, this is, this is y'all's doing in a good way. I mean that in a good way. So you're going to get to see them preach, in particular, one of them who has been joining us remotely. So you're going to meet a new preacher that's been in our lab for the last year that I don't think many of y'all have met. Either way, it'll be really fun. I'm excited. So we're headed into Advent next. At the start of the year, we're going to jump into 1 Corinthians. And so we're going to be in 1 Corinthians for almost all of 2024, right? This is the next year. Yeah, 2024. So it should be fun. Start reading. Uh, with that being said, let's dig into our time and uh, 
And yeah, let me, let me open up just with some, uh, let me open up our time with kind of another quick update. Uh, in the next couple of weeks, and this is tying right into the sermon, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be celebrating some baptisms here at Storehouse McAllen. And I'm really excited for this. Baptisms are super cool. We have uh, several adults and a number of children. Yesterday, we hosted a baptism class, uh, and we're planning on hosting another one in December, all in celebration of these upcoming baptisms. Now, one of the most meaningful things about baptism is that it's not only a public display of faith in what God has done, but for the one who has already been baptized, and that should, might be you, should, might be you, for the one who has already been baptized, it's a time of remembrance. It's a time of remembrance where you start to think, man, God saves sinners like me. You think back to who you were before Jesus saved you. You think back about all that God allowed in order for you to come to the moment where you responded to his call. You think about what God has done since your conversion. You remember that God is still clearly in the business of restoration as you witness brothers and sisters in the faith being, faith being baptized. You think about all that God will continue to do. It's a beautiful moment for the church because it's filled with the riches of celebration and remembrance. And so as we close in Malachi, though we're talking about remembrance, it's something that Israel seems to just keep stumbling over. It's something they continue to forget over and over again. For them, remembrance wasn't connected to a relationship with God, but a transaction with God. Their circumstances revealed the true condition of their hearts, that they had forgotten God, they forgot his word, they forgot his work, and as a result, they have turned from him. And while it's easier for us to look at Israel and wonder how could they even do that, even with history and glory on their side, Christians today do the exact same thing. Oftentimes I've had individuals in my office say, man, I, I, I believe Jesus, I've, I, I'm saved. Why is this season so hard? If this season is so hard, God must not love me anymore. God must have forgotten about me. And what ends up happening is when that starts to kind of begin to, to create momentum, we forget God's word, we forget his work, we forget his wonder. In turn, our hearts go from affection to apathy, from adoration to anger, from worship to wandering. In our concluding text this afternoon, I want you to see that in order to go from apathy, which is where Israel has been, which is where many of us have related to Israel in, in order to go from apathy to affection, here's what we must do. We must remember the wonderful works of God for us. In order to go from apathy to affection, we, want, we must remember the wonderful works of God for us. In our time, we're going to consider three things. We're going to consider confrontation from God, the challenge of God, and then the comfort of God. Once more, we're going to consider confrontation from God, the challenge of God, and then finally, the comfort of God. So let me pray, and we'll dig into the text once more. We're going to find ourselves in Malachi 3, beginning in verse 13, and we're taking this all the way through chapter 4, verse 6. Let me pray. <clears throat> God, we thank you for being good. 
We thank you for being gracious. Lord, this is most displayed through Jesus saving us. And so, God, as we, as we look at your word, confront us. But don't leave us there. Challenge us. But don't leave us there either. Compel us to change. Lord, we know that we can because the Spirit resides in us. And that is your doing in us and for us. So as we look at your word, may we regularly, ongoingly, throughout our time, be remembering who you are and what you have done for us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's begin with the first point or the first section. This is confrontation from God. This is in verses 13 to 18, so pretty much the ending of chapter 3. Well, as a reminder, over the last six weeks, the way, especially if you are new, the way Malachi is structured uh, is, is where God accuses Israel. This is his chosen nation, his chosen people. He accuses Israel of their sin. In the last six weeks, we've seen God uh, accuse or bring up this, these disputations to Israel, saying that, hey, your, your worship is worthless you are faithless, you are disobedient. So he makes this accusation to Israel. And then in turn, Israel responds by challenging God. And all that really does is actually show their heart and how they're postured before God. And then God responds by providing Israel with the proof of his accusation. And so that's where we're finding ourselves in verses 13 to 15. So here's what, uh, or here's how God opens the, the sixth and final dispute towards Israel. Here's what he says Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. There's the accusation. Your words have been hard against me. Over the last six weeks, Israel, we've seen Israel complaining. We've seen Israel grow apathetic. We've seen Israel demonstrate faithlessness. Uh, and we see that Israel has been rebellious toward God. Rather than seeing Israel torn, turn to God with their complaints, they're turning from God in rebellion. They're turning away from God and rejecting what he has done, rejecting what he has said, rejecting all of his work. They have justified their disobedience because of their circumstances. And yet one thing that we continually see week after week is that God is the one who not only initiates the conversation, but he is the one who pursues his children. And so here he is with that accusation. Your words have been hard. So Israel responds, but you say, how have we spoken against you? Once more, the review over the last six weeks has been in Israel's apathy, their response, their posture towards God is, is apathetic. It's almost cynical. It could be sarcastic. You say these things, but how? How can you prove that we've actually been this way? It's almost like they're willingly choosing ignorance. And so God responds once more. This is uh, still in verse 14. So they, they, they say, how have, you, how have we spoken against you? And he says, it is vain to serve God. 
What is the profit uh, of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. And so what God is doing is saying, you want to know how you've been harsh towards me? Here's what you've been saying about me. Here's what you've been saying to me. Now, Here's what we need to recognize. These complaints by Israel, we're going to look at them very, very briefly. These complaints by Israel are the same ones that you and I have in difficult seasons. So when they say, it is vain to serve God, they're saying, what's the point of serving God? Look at our circumstances. Things are terrible. My marriage is in a rocky season. This is going on. I've lost my job. All of these things are terrible. Clearly, God has forgotten us. When they say, what is the profit of our keeping his charge? They're saying, what's the benefit of even obeying him? He's made these promises, but he hasn't delivered on his promises. When they add of of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts, what they're saying is, what's the point of daily dying to ourselves? What's the point of denying ourselves, right? The, 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 The wicked get the blessing. The wicked are happy. They're the ones who are getting what they want. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape and look at those who don't even know God. They, they, they're getting what they want. They have it made. They're happy. They go unpunished. They go undisciplined. We might as well do whatever it is we want because look around. That's Israel's posture. We're not immune to this kind of hardship or season. For example, as a church, we've experienced everything from members in our church being in the hospital. We've experienced the loss of grandparents. Uh, uh, Marriages or or families have, have experienced miscarriages. Parents have been in the hospital. Marriages are in rocky seasons. It's really easy and it's understandable to look at our circumstance and complain the exact same way as Israel because we do it all the time. Is God even good? Does God even care? I thought when I became a Christian, things would be easy. How does this relationship even work? You can hear their anger, their their apathy. And so Malachi continues by addressing two groups. This is found in verses 16 and 18. So he's talking to two audiences, and he begins. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. So there's two audiences. So let me make something clear. In our time in Malachi, it has not been as though there's been this, like, hidden cell of, like, righteous and good people, right? What we're seeing here when Malachi transitions and he says that those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, what we are seeing is from that group of, from Israel, those who have been complaining, those who have been apathetic, those who have been pointing their finger of God, from that group, some repented. Some repented. 
Maybe over the course of them hearing God, for example, two weeks ago, we read that God says, hey, repent and return to me and I will return to you. And so maybe there was this group of individuals, we don't know who, we don't know how many, we don't know how long they talked. We just know that those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. Perhaps it was something to where they snap out of me like, whoa, where have we actually been? The Lord's been convicting us of our sin. The Lord has been revealing our hearts to us. We've been part of the the wicked. We've been part of the ones who are complaining. We've been part of the ones who are apathetic. But one thing to be clear is that both of these groups were wicked, sinful, and apathetic, yet some repented and remembered the Lord. So it continues. The Lord paid attention to them and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. It's not that they figured it out. It's that they turned away from their sin. It's that they remembered God, his word, his work, and the Lord heard him. The psalmist usually writes it this way, and he inclined his ear to their prayers. At some point, they remembered that they belonged to the Lord. That though their circumstance was difficult and hard and painful, that doesn't make God not good. It doesn't mean that God's forgotten about us. It doesn't mean that God has changed his mind or gone back on his promise. This circumstance, they might have thought, this circumstance stinks because it does. (laughs) This season is hard because it is. Things like pain and death exist because of sin and the impact sin has had. But God has not left us to ourselves. And so what these individuals do is that they look back at what God had done for them in order to find encouragement in the present. They get together and they consider what God had done so that they look to the future. So when it says that they feared the Lord, that they esteemed him, they came back to this place where they revered him, where they remember that he is God and he is good. Just because we're experiencing this doesn't mean he's left us to ourselves. Verse 17 The Lord says, they shall be mine. And the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. And so the Lord reminds them of their position before him. They've been spared, not because they're better, because they were given grace. They're not slaves, but sons. As they've repented, the Lord reminds them, You've always been mine. You've always been my treasured possession. It's an echo of Exodus 19. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So remember, he's speaking to Israel, and within Israel, there are these two groups, these two audiences. There's the righteous, and there's the wicked. But make no bones, 
The righteous are righteous aren't because, like, when we look at the Bible, we got, like, the good guys and the bad guys. I've told you this before, right? And, like, the bad guys all have black hats and the good guys all have white hats. No, 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 no. There's only one person in all of Scripture who has a white hat. His name is Jesus, right? And if you're like hats, go watch old westerns, right? So there's only one who wears a white hat and his name is Jesus. Everyone else has a black hat, but some of the ones who have the black hat know Jesus, <laughs> Some of the ones who know have the black hat have repented of their sin. And so because of that, the Lord in verse 18 gives them a little bit of uh, insight. Hey, one day there will be distinction. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Once more, here's what we need to remember. Here's what we need to recognize these two audiences exist within Israel. Like, he's not addressing, in the context, he's not addressing a Gentile group. He's addressing Israel. And within these two groups, or yeah, within these two groups, one of them viewed their relationship with God as transactional. The other one viewed their relationship with God as relational. One group looks at God through the lens of their circumstance, while the other group looks at God through the lens of his favor for them. So before we move on, because we're going to dive into chapter 4, how do you view your relationship with God? Do you view it as relational or transactional? You might say, well, I'm experiencing hardship, and I'm going to have some complaints, and there's a lot of things that I'm struggling with, and it's going to happen. And the Bible's very clear that we're going to experience those kinds of difficulties. Therefore, do you turn your complaints toward God? Because the psalmist does. We can go to the psalms and find encouragement and see individuals who are writing and complaining, but they're turning their complaints to God, right? Psalm 25, the psalmist opens by saying, I turn to the Lord. Right, Psalm 55, one of the, the, the psalmist goes on to say that I complain and I groan and I moan all day long, all night. And then he adds, and at noon, just in case you were like, oh, it's only an 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. thing. Like this dude is like moaning and groaning and complaining before the Lord all day. Or are you like the wicked in this passage? Who don't turn their complaints to God, but complain at God, about God, blame shifting, justifying your disobedience because of the season that you find yourself in. Do you find yourself like them saying that the wicked get what they want? The ones who don't know Jesus, the ones who aren't in church, the ones who aren't religious, they're getting what they want. I'm not. This isn't fair. Listen, Christian. This life is the closest we'll ever get to experiencing hell. Yet for the unbeliever, this life is the closest they'll get to ever experience heaven. And so in this closing portion of chapter 3, what we learn is that when the grace of God confronts us, it reveals the heart of our relationship with him as transactional, or relational. Maybe a better word for relational would be covenantal. Now, on to chapter 4. 
So there's the confrontation from God. Now we move into the challenge from God. He's confronted Israel, and he's going to further continue this prophecy of the, the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And it gets pretty graphic. So here, here we go. We're going to consider first verses 1 through 3. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will stubble. The day is coming, the day that is coming, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Jump down to verse 3. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under your feet, under the soles of your feet, on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So God, through Malachi, is saying, there's going to be a day that's coming. This is a reference to the day of the Lord. Not Christmas, not, not the first advent of Jesus, but the second advent of Jesus. When he will come to judge the living and the dead. And so he's unpacking this distinction between the righteous and between the wicked. And so beginning with the wicked, what we just read, verses 1 and 3. He writes about the day of the Lord. And he uses the illustration that it will be burning like an oven. That there will be a fire that consumes. Look, no one likes talking about judgment or hell. And if you do, you're weird. But we need to address it. We need to address it because it's a reality that sinners face apart from grace through faith in Jesus. Within this day of judgment, what Malachi is saying is, when this day comes... And it will be a consuming fire. When this day comes, there will absolutely be no more opportunity for repentance. That the wicked will be eternally separated from God. Not only will they experience judgment, but they will be in a place where the grace of God is absent. It's haunting. Yet, so for the wicked, that is real news. That will be what happens. But for the righteous, this section is really good news. Verse 2. But for you, for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. So Malachi uses this illustration of the sun of righteousness, meaning that when the sun comes, what does it do? It shines light on everything. It exposes the truth. It pushes the darkness back. It brings warmth. It pushes the darkness back. It reveals what is true. And so there's this illustration of what the sun literally does, but it is also this foreshadowing of the sun who will come. Jesus refers to himself as the light. And what does the light do? It exposes what is true. It pushes darkness back. It vindicates those who are his. And then again, the sun of righteousness, that Jesus radiates righteousness and he gives righteousness. And on this day, we will be made righteous. Now you might say, I thought we were already righteous. Right? Don't we wear Christ's righteousness? Yes, 
And on this day, like you and I can't even fathom it, at least I can't. On this day, you will cease to sin. And then he continues. On this day, it will have healing in its wings. On this day, there will be no more sickness, no more corruption or death or decay. There won't be this thing called cancer or pulmonary hypertension or rheumatoid arthritis. There won't be seizures. There won't be sickness. There won't be aching bones. There won't be glitching minds. On this day, there will be absolute and complete healing. And he doesn't end. He says, you will leap like calves. In other words, on this day, not only will you be fully healed, not only will you be fully righteous, you will be free from the presence of sin. When Jesus saves you, we are forgiven of our sin. We are freed from the power of our sin and the Holy Spirit is evidence of that. We can say no to sin and turn to Jesus, yet the presence of sin still lingers. You and I are still at war with that. That's why we drop the ball. But on this day, the presence of sin will be no more. It will be the fulfillment of Revelation 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. It is real news, and then it is really good news. But there's concern. The concern for Israel from Malachi is once more, this passage primarily is not directed at Gentiles. This is directed at Israel. There's two audiences. It's like Israel, and within Israel, there's the wicked and the righteous. These two audiences exist within Israel. Why is this alarming? Because as we fast forward to the life of the church, that's the same thing that can happen. There are those in the church, there are those who are in the church, the category of the church, that actually do not know Jesus. The day is coming where the Lord will separate the sheep from the goats. One of the most detailed accounts of that is Matthew 25, but just listen to Matthew 7. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And did we not cast out demons in your name? And did we not do mighty works in your name? And I, that's Jesus talking, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. Within this group of Israel, you got the wicked and you got the righteous. It's not that one group went from being bad into now they're good, but by God's grace, one group is repentant. See, repentance didn't make them better, it just reminded them of who they belonged to. The concern for the church is the same. You see, we desire to see people come to know and live like Jesus. That's what I want to see. 
right? And at the same time, that same desire exists for the church too. There are some of you who are here and profess Christ, but you do not know him. There are some there are some who serve within the life of the church and hearts are far from God. And this relationship with God has been determined because maybe you were raised in a Christian home. Maybe you attended church all of your life and you've exercised religious duty, but you're unrepentant. Therefore, when seasons of hardship and pressure come, your heart is revealed. And what ends up happening is you don't ask God questions, you quench him. You don't turn toward God, but turn away from him. Why? Because God isn't cooperating with the deal you made with him. I believed, therefore you're going to hook me up. That's what it says. Eat, drink, and be merry. And he doesn't hook you up, so we grow bitter. But in truth, many never loved God. Rather, they use God to get what they really want. But when you don't get that, whatever that is, X, whatever your thing is, when you don't get that, you grow angry and rebellious, convinced that your religious efforts have been for nothing. Well, that's not me. For others, maybe it's not trials. Perhaps it's comparison. God's grace is cool, but why are others getting what they want? Well, if God's not going to hook me up, that just means I need to work harder in order to get something for myself. And what, at, what ends up happening is that comparison reveals that our worth and trust was never in him, but based on this contract, not a covenant. In real time, we're basically like the brothers from the story of the prodigal son. There's two brothers, both of them were sinners, and there's a dad. And the dad loves them both, and they both work for their dad. The younger brother wants his inheritance from pops, and he doesn't want to wait until his dad dies. So he goes to his pops, hook me up with my inheritance. Dad's like, here you go. He gets it, he blows it. All he did was view his dad as an ATM. And in shame, he returns home, hoping that his dad would forgive him, receive him, and maybe, just maybe, hook him up with a job. Because he, recognized, he has recognized that even his dad's servants have a better life than his. And so maybe he can get a slice of that. And he shows up. He walks in shame up to the house, and his pops doesn't wait. Sees him, starts running towards him, gives him this really big hug, hooks him up with clothes, throws him a party, welcomes him, forgives him, reminds him, you've always been my son. It's because he was better, no, it's because he was repentant. But then there's the other brother who's angry because his dad showed his younger brother favor when he's the one who's been working for his dad. He's never complained once. He's doing all of the right things. He's checked off all of the boxes and is patiently waiting for his dad to die so that he can get his inheritance. The reality of the two brothers is that neither of them truly loved their pops. One was lost, rebelled, and repented. The other did the right things, but never actually had the right heart. So he was justified in his response, 
or at least felt justified in his response. You and I do the same thing, but what it does is that it displays hearts shaped by something else apart from the grace of God. But he doesn't leave us there. Here's the challenge. Here it is, ready? Verse four. Remember the law of Moses. The statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. It's another word for Sinai, Mount Sinai. So what what does God say? Remember my word. Remember my word. It is evidence that I've pursued you. It is evidence of what I've done for you. It is evidence that I keep my promises to you. Therefore, when it comes to obedience, it's not because you're trying to prove your worth to me. It's not because you're trying to prove that you, that, oh man, you need to show me that you belong to me. No, I'm telling you, you belong to me. Therefore, obey. The law was what God valued and what pleased him. And when Israel rebelled, what did God do? He sent prophets. He sent prophets who would speak to Israel and remind them not only of God's promise, but would say, repent and return to him. Repent and return. So the challenge is to remember. Remember what God has done. Remember what God has said. He's like, remember when that was what shaped you? Remember that. Fast forward to the church, what does that mean for us? That means that we are to stir one another up, that we would give and breathe the words of God to one another so that we remember, so that we turn from rebellion to repentance, so that we go from apathy to affection. Here's how the writer of Hebrews says it. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Notice, let us, not let you, us, plural, let us hold fast the confession and hope of, uh, without wavering. For he who promised is Faithful, let us, us, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's urgency. There's urgency because it's so easy to forget what God has done. Therefore, let us stir one another up so that we remember what God has done, so that we remember what he's come to do, so that we remember what he's going to do. The challenge from God is to remember God. And so now we come to comfort. We've looked at God's confrontation to Israel, his challenge towards Israel, and now he circles back to comfort because he's a loving father. Five and six, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. <clears throat> I'm not just going to leave you there. I'm going to send you someone. I'm going to send you this dude that's like Elijah. This is the, the prophecy concerning John the Baptist that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. That John the Baptist is the one who's going to show up on the scene and he's going to pave the way for the king. That John the Baptist, he's the messenger. He's the herald. He's the one that shows up a little bit early to tell everybody the king is on his way. The king has arrived. The king will be here. And you're like, are you sure? Check it. 2 Kings 1.8. I want you to look at the description. They answered him. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, it is Elisha, the Tishbite. 
Fast forward to Mark, uh, chapter 1, 6 through 8. Now John, referring to John the Baptist. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. And he wanted to take it a step further. He ate locusts and wild honey. The original hipster. And he preached, after me, one, after me comes he who is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandals I'm unworthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Remember, John the Baptist, what was his job? To herald that the king has arrived. His job is to make way. The king who would arrive is God incarnate. God in the flesh as Jesus Christ, born of a virgin who lived a sinless life who endured everything that Israel and us cannot endure, all so that we would be restored to the Father by dying on a cross in our place and for our sin, where our guilt and shame and complaining and failure and apathy and pride and anger and corruption was all imputed onto him, was all put on him, and in exchange, he gives us his righteousness so that we would walk in the newness of life. Unlike Israel and Malachi, Jesus obeyed the Father perfectly. Unlike us, when our best claim to serve God is always partial and incomplete, mixed with sinful motives and action, Jesus' service was holy and pure. And yet under the worst circumstance one can find themselves in, on the cross, Jesus didn't mock God, but was mocked by all who passed by. And in that awful situation, in that terrible act, God was restoring and completing his work of redemption through Jesus for sinners like you and me. The only way for you and I to be counted as sons and daughters was for God not to spare his only son, but to give him up for us. The righteous judge had himself to be judged so that we could be forgiven of all the times that we spoke harshly against God. Your righteousness is in Jesus. Not your title, not your ethic, not your intelligence, not even your perfect obedience, because it's not. Because we're sinners who fail, by God's grace, the righteousness that we walk in is one that we have received, not achieved. The comfort of God is found in the promise of God through Christ. As I mentioned, we're looking at baptism, having baptisms in a couple of weeks. And the testimony of a Christian is not simply, I was a sinner, Jesus saved me, now I'm going to heaven. That's it. But understanding something a little bit more. It's understanding what we've been saved from. That once we were dead in our sin and God through the Holy Spirit brought us to life in Christ. That our reception of the gospel and repentance of our sin is evidence of God's work for and in us. Therefore, as a church, let us look back to remember the grace of God for us so that we would be encouraged, so that we would encourage one another in the present, so that we would remember the future. 
And I stress remembrance, not simply because we see Israel forget over and over again, but because we do the exact same thing. What we just saw in Malachi is that there's this small number. We don't know who, we don't know how many. There's this small number of people who repented. And throughout the, the, the entire book, God has reminded them, hey, I have loved you. Repent and return to me. I will return to you. Turn to me, turn to me. Remember, remember, remember. And it's almost like just stressed. And you wonder why. Well, as the last book of the Old Testament, we learned that after this, God goes silent for 400 years. And I want you to know, and I want you to remember, that just because God is silent does not mean he is not working. Pulling back to Malachi in that there's that stress of remembering. Israel had to remember God and his work because it became a long season of waiting and longing for the fruition of his promise. You might be in a season where it's been difficult and you wonder, what is God doing? This text points us to the hope and the fruition of his promises because the one who would endure all so that we would be restored entered into time, space, and history as Jesus Christ. Like Israel, let us look to Jesus to remember God's work, to trust in him today because he is at work today, and to look to the future because he will return one day. So Christian, where is your heart today? Is your, do you justify your disobedience because of your circumstance? Well, if things weren't going wrong, I wouldn't be acting this way. What it's doing is revealing where you've really been. Maybe that's not you. Are you the one who's like, well, I've always been in church. I've always served. I've always done things, you know, so you're banking on your religious morality, but you're far from God. You get asked, what's the gospel? You get nervous. For both, remember and return. Remember what God has done and return to him. And if you're not a Christian, I'm pretty sure the middle of chapter 4 wasn't fun. It's not a fun topic to unpack hell. Yet Jesus speaks of it regularly because it's that sphere. Yet if you were to ask me, if I don't know Jesus, does that mean that I go to hell? My answer would be yes. You might add, well, how could a good God send people to hell? To which I would respond with that the better question is, how could a good God save sinners like you and me? Turn toward Jesus. Repent of your sin. And believe in the Son of righteousness through faith. Apathy turns to affection when we remember the work and wonder of God. Let's pray. God, we confess. We confess that like Israel, we are forgetful. 
that we are quick to consider our circumstance more than your covenant. And as a result, we forget about your word and your work. We confess that we allow ourselves to be shaped by things apart from your grace through Jesus. Lord, we confess that we are shaped by things that we want from you. Our morality, our religious efforts. We are shaped by justifying our sinful actions when in reality, what you reveal is that our hearts have been more for a commercial transaction than a covenantal relationship. Forgive us. Forgive us and, and may we not forget this wonderful book that is Malachi. God, may your word not simply convict us, but change us as we turn from sin in confession and repentance. Give us strength to look to Jesus so that we would grow in love, so that we would grow in trust, so that we would grow to treasure Jesus.